Welcome to Backstage the Enharmonic. I'm your host, Sean J. Kennedy. Today's guest is Rich Daniels, conductor, composer, and saxophonist. In this edition, Rich talks about his work with the City Lights Orchestra in Chicago. National tours that he's been on with many great artists, including Warren Haynes, where I first met Rich and worked with him for the last two years on the Jerry Garcia Celebration, which also gives us some insight into the television production studios in Chicago, and a once-in-a-lifetime meeting that he had with Sir Paul McCartney. I hope you enjoyed this edition of Backstage at the Enharmonic. Rich, hi, are you there? This is Sean Kennedy. Hi, Sean. It's nice to hear from you. This is Rich Daniels. Thank you for calling. Oh, my pleasure. And I'm so glad to have a few minutes to uh, talk about your career. So the first question I ask all of my guests, um, I go back to the very beginning. And I'd like to know if you have a very clear recollection of the first time music, uh, you noticed it or it influenced you as a child. I actually do. My, My father used to play phonograph records in my bedroom at night to put me to sleep. And, uh, you know, to this day, I think it's uh, part of my challenge for getting a good night's sleep without some type of uh, oral simulation, hearing something in the background to make me fall asleep. I, I'll have a television radio or, or an iPod I'm playing, but I remember very clearly hearing those great storybook records that you could buy with um, people like Danny Kay and other actors who did voice work on recordings. And so the, the recordings he played for me had these magnificent orchestras in the background with voice actors over them doing child stories. I remember... Uh, 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 Bluebird's, uh, Bluebird's Castle, and then this great Danny Kay album with all kinds of short stories. But all of them had magnificent orchestras on them. You know, they were, those were the days when people invested in lots of live music, and they, they would put large ensembles on these recordings because it was what they did. It was long before the days of synthetic music and anything we could create with, with electronic instruments. So I, I remember very clearly all those great recordings, and especially the Disney ones as well. So the, the very early Disney recordings, when I was very small, were just coming out as well, the Winnie the Poohs and Mary Poppins. I was a, a very young child at the time, but I remember them clearly. That's beautiful. And I guess subliminally, uh, that could have led to your current position in the music world with the live orchestras and such. Right. It corrupted me forever, absolutely. So. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Now, I first uh, was introduced to you as a conductor, um, and I know you play saxophone also. Could you tell us about you know, when did you start formally taking lessons? Was it on saxophone? Was it on piano? Uh, where did your music instruction begin? Sure. My first serious music instruction began in fourth grade when I uh, uh, picked up a saxophone and started playing in the local grade school band. And from there, it, it just stayed with me for my entire career. So saxophone is my primary instrument. I play piano. Uh, I compose. I, I write. Uh, I arrange. Uh, and then conducting came along when I was in my late 20s. And that's been a, a steady flow of opportunities for uh, the past 30-some years. I'm 56 now. I look like I'm 107, but I'm 56. <laughs> no. But it, it, it's been a big part of what I've done for a long time. So the saxophone, uh, the writing, and the conducting have been the, the three keys to my career. That coupled with leading a local orchestra in the Chicagoland area, uh, which has been very successful in a variety of settings from corporate shows to music for meetings and in in associations and social occasions as well. So like like most musicians, in most towns, we get to travel and do wonderful things and be part of great opportunities. But most of us come out of a base where we have a, 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 an opportunity that, that we look back or look towards on a regular basis. And I've had an office in Chicago for well over 30 years representing the what we call the City Lights Orchestra, as well as all the endeavors related to the orchestra. 
After you got out of high school, were you working as a professional saxophone player and then the conducting happened, or were they were they hand-in-hand, hand or did the, did the conducting come later? Well, it, it all kind of happened simultaneously. We formed the first band, which we called the Big Band Machine, in 1974 when I was 14 years old, and that was music dedicated to music of the Big Band era. So it was lots of Basie, Miller, Ellington, Goodman, Dorsey, and that would require limited conducting skills, as any big band would. It's not, you know, much of a conducting skill. It's more of a cueing skill. But it was a good, uh, good, a good uh, learning ground for me to, to get my career started in that direction. So the big band music became very important to us. And then, of course, we, we, we got to involved with more big band music that was current at the time, the stuff that Louis Belson, Buddy Rich, uh, 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 the great bass player, Jaco Pistorius, uh, things like that that we're doing with big bands. We were embracing all the more modern big band music into the early 90s, and then I went out and ran the Woody Herman Band for six months from, I guess that would have been uh, December of 1990 through around June of 91. Uh, Woody's estate asked me to uh, to take the band, try and make it uh, commercially viable again, economically successful, so they can go back out and do the tours they'd always done, and so I did that for, for six harrowing months. It was... <laughs> It was quite an opportunity because I, I loved the band and I played one of the tenor books in the band during that period of time. But I was working with guys who were much older than me, who had been on that band forever and kind of resented this 30-year-old kid that the estate brought in who had some business sense and was going to tell them how to make this profitable, how to do this. And you know, the only thing I can say is that even though we wound up pushing hard against one another, the music was great. And fundamentally, I gave them a, a plan of action to keep that band going for the next 20 years, which it did on a successful basis with a new organizational model. They really desperately needed it. They were losing money de- uh, desperately. Woody had been dead for maybe three or four years at that point, and the band was going away. So I was, I was proud of my involvement, proud of that interaction, but it did take me, uh, uh, it put me through the mill. And then from there, literally out of the Woody Herman band, I went and did my first shows as an orchestra conductor in August of 91, when I was just 31 years old, uh, where I was asked to do some corporate shows uh, with a large orchestra, and I credit the people who hired me because I'd never conducted an orchestra, and they didn't know it. So, <laughs> but it was fun, <laughs> and it really it it led to something really wonderful. I've I've had you know 25 uh, amazing years of great opportunities, uh, including the ones that I got to work with you in New York and uh, in New Jersey. That's fantastic, and I I, I must say too, from the back of the uh, orchestra, I've worked with a lot of conductors. And um, you're a wonderful conductor to work for, not because of your person, not just because of your personality and your ease to work with, um, but you know exactly what to cue, where the beat is needed. All too often, I think I see conductors doing excess movements that aren't necessary, and uh, you're always right on the mark, and you're very easy to play for. So thank you for that. Well, that, that's very kind of you. And I think my years of being a saxophonist, playing in jazz ensemble, and playing in orchestras to a limited degree, showed me that you know a conductor's role should be as minimal as possible, and you're there to support the musicians. You're not there to direct the musicians. You're there to support the musicians. So you know if you let them do what they do well and, and just you know lay down the guideposts along the way, it seems to make the best sense. And, and of course, the whole beat pattern that conductors get caught with, you know, the, the real serious, legit conductors, of which I am not. You know, they they're the ones who the, the, the downbeat winds up somewhere above their head, and you know it's. <laughs> It's amazing to watch when I watch great conductors like Ricardo Muti or, or any of the, the greats. Uh, and I've watched them conducting. It's almost baffling to me in terms of how they're conducting and how the orchestra is responding. But that's a different ballgame. What you saw me do, of course, is you know we're working with a rhythm section in a large orchestra, and it's, it's, it's a different animal. But clarity is everything. You just want to be clear. You don't want to get in anyone's way, and you want to help the musicians be able to perform to the best of their ability. 
Exactly. And we percussionists and drummers in the back appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. So I have a lot of students that will probably be checking this out in their uh, in the beginning of their career or thinking of going into the entertainment business. Was there a moment when you were on the road or conducting or composing or playing saxophone and it all of a sudden hit you that, yes, I've made it, this is the right decision, I should be doing music full-time? Did you ever have a moment like that? I don't know if I had a moment other than I had a very strong desire and will to do this uh, from the time I was 14 when we started that very first big band. This was what I wanted to do where I wanted my life to take me, and I wanted to take as many of my friends and associates along as best as I possibly can. So it wasn't a moment as much as a passion to just kind of took over. I think, I think you, most musicians will tell you that at some point. You feel this is something you're supposed to do. You hope it works out. You hope you can be financially viable and successful and support a family. I've been, I've been more blessed than I can shake, you know, than I can begin to count. I've got a wife and four kids and you know, my career has been very, very successful and enjoyable, and I hope there's more to come. But, you know, you, you hope that, you know, any young person entering the industry can, can get on a path that gets them to that level of economic stability where they can meet their dreams, meet their goals, and still participate at the level they want to. It's not easy. You know, when I talk to kids, which I do regularly, I tell them that there is no help wanted ad that's going to help you fulfill it. You can't take your resume and send it to a company and do an interview and get a, get a gig. It doesn't work like that. There's a whole different level of networking. You have to be a little, little bit of an entrepreneur, much like yourself. Clearly what I'm seeing in you is you've got a bunch of different things going on from your blog, your percussion skills, your teaching, everything else. You know, this is what it takes to form a career. You form a career by putting a number of different avenues together that makes uh, a career over, over a period of time. The most interesting thing I get to do right now is for the past 31 months, I've been the music director for a, a television show called Empire. It's on Fox. And it's it's uh, the number one rated show in America on Wednesday nights. Uh, not a lot of musicians necessarily watch it, if I had to guess. It's a nighttime soap opera, but it's a very music-based show. And what's interesting for me is that in the last 31 months, I've used over 150 local musicians in Chicago, where the entire show films, uh, to be on camera for these great opportunities with this television show. They're lucrative opportunities, and they're opportunities with big-name talent, you know, the the young artists that have gathered in Chicago to be on the TV show have been able to perform with everyone from Snoop Dogg and Jennifer Hudson to Patti LaBelle to Alicia Keys to Mariah Carey. It's big names in the African-American community of hip-hop and urban music, which is what the base, the base of the show is. And it's, it's a great opportunity for young people. And so it's a, a thrill for me to be able to mentor them, bring them into the show, show them how to make a living, and show them how this industry doesn't have to only exist in Hollywood. It's spreading out throughout the entire world. And wherever there's a studio and people willing to bring television and film to their community, young people in our industry need to, to, to jump in, get on board, and find a way to get inside those walls and be a part of those opportunities. Because, as, as you know, Sean, those are very lucrative opportunities. Uh, they're very engaging, and they're, they're great fun. And the profile is incredible. This show gets 15 to 16 million viewers every Wednesday night. And it's, it's been a real coup for Chicago to have it film here even though it is set fictitiously in New York City. You know, when I get to call somebody and tell them they've got a gig, I get to feel like I'm playing Santa Claus because there's great excitement when they're getting an opportunity on a show like Empire. It's, you know, and it's, it's got an, an international audience. The show is huge in China and Japan and in Greece. Uh, you know, and these kids are going to receive residuals from even one episode's performance. So it's, it's, a, it's a great opportunity. When did you first get involved with TV work? 
Television and, and film has uh, been stretching outside of Hollywood for years, as we all know. But five years ago, they built a movie studio in Chicago on 51 acres. It's the largest, it's the largest studio outside of Hollywood. This movie studio in Chicago is called Cinespace. It's on 51 acres of Chicago land on the near south side, and it's an old steel plant. And they took it, they retrofitted it, they built sound stages. There are now 30 sound stages at Cinespace in Chicago, shooting eight different shows. Empire, the show we're working on, takes up one-third of the entire studio. The other two-thirds are spread out over seven different shows. So it's become an enormous industry. It's over a $1.1 billion economic impact in Chicago every year right now. And it's only growing. That number is going to be larger when we audit their books for 2016 in terms of the economic impact on our community. Uh, a movie studio like Cinespace is responsible for over 7,500 jobs in our community. So when that happens, you get the politicians behind you. And when that happens, they come up with a favorable tax structure to welcome Chicago, to welcome uh, film and television in Chicago. And that's when the big studios say, you know what, we're going to bring a show to Chicago. We can save money. We've got a good talent pool, and it's going to be successful. Other cities are doing this, too. So... Atlanta saw us do this. Now Atlanta's doing this. And so there's, there's other folks that are realizing it all, doesn't all have to be in Hollywood anymore, which is good for people that want to have mm -hmm. a career in music or film and television. They realize it could be in their backyard if, if their community is able to, to create it and embrace it. There was a snippet about a story with you and Paul McCartney and teaching saxophone. Could you uh, tell the listeners a little bit about that story? <clears throat> Sure, like like anybody in our industry, you, you get a, a bunch of war stories you, you gather up over many years and. One of my favorite is this story where uh, 14 years ago, uh, my business partner was a guy named Dean Rolando, and he still is. Dean is uh, associate music conductor of the City Lights Service. He and I have worked together for 30 years. Great guy. And 14 years ago, in 2002, cell phones were still very uh, inaccurate, didn't work well. You had one. Not many people would have your number. It wasn't something you did business on like we do now. It was still pretty uh, a pretty new device. And my cell phone rang when we were in the office, and I didn't answer it because I didn't recognize the number. And, again, back then, if you didn't see the number, chances are it was a crank call or a wrong number. So I didn't answer it. And we went to, do, we went to lunch, rang again, same number, and, and Dean said, said, just answer it. I think. said, no, I'm not going to answer it. I'm sure it's, you know, somebody who wants to, you know, sell me some, some you know, a pyramid scheme or something. I'm not answering it. So we get back to the office. It's noon now, or, or just actually it's 1 o'clock now. And it rang again, and Dean said, if you don't answer it, I am. Fine, I answered the, the cell phone. And this guy with an English accent, and he introduced himself. I don't remember what his name was, but bottom line is he said uh, he heard that I'm a professional saxophonist, and he has a client who wants to have a saxophone lesson. And so uh, I said, okay, I don't really teach, but, you know, I give some master classes and whatnot. He said, well, this is a very exceptional situation. Uh, we're, you know, we're just looking for a professional player to come and meet us at the Ritz-Carlton and to, you know, spend some time, about an hour, with, with our client. And uh, to cut to the quick, uh, the Ritz-Carlton is about four blocks from my office in downtown Chicago. So I figured, okay, I'll roll the dice. They offered me actually a very, very handsome sum of money to show up for that one hour. I figured, well, if they're good for it, then it'll have been worth my time. And bottom line is I get to the Ritz-Carlton. Security takes me. They find me. They bring me up to the presidential suite. And a young lady named Heather Mills answers the door, who the, the student was going to be. And Heather Mills at the time was married to Paul McCartney. And Paul was doing a concert at the United Center in Chicago. She takes me into the presidential suite. She wants to learn how to play the saxophone. And she tells me, Paul will be down in a moment to say hello. At which point I started pretty much internally hyperventilating, thinking this is absolutely <laughs> bizarre. Two hours ago, I was sitting with my buddy having lunch. Now I'm in a suite with Paul McCartney and his wife. And I'm going to give her a saxophone lesson. <laughs> and sure enough, he came down this huge spiral staircase and he ran over to me and said, hi, are you Rick? 
I, I, you know, my, I, I'm sure I sounded like Jackie Gleason, you know, how many, how many, how many, how many, yes, I remember <laughs> it. And he says, I'm Paul. And I'm thinking, wow, I've, I've had this dream before, you know, <laughs> and this went on for an hour. You know, the interesting thing about a guy like McCartney, now for me, it was completely by surprise. We've worked with lots of celebrities and like most musicians, you get plenty of chances to work with great, great performers, but usually you ramp up to it. You, it's expected, you know, it's coming, you prepare. This was out of the blue. And there I am in this suite with Paul McCartney and his wife, going to give her a saxophone lesson. He's walking back and forth to check in on us and making a you know, wisecracks and jokes. He, he can tell. He, clearly a man like that knows that he puts people ill at ease when they meet him, that, you know, I was coming out of my skin. It was just bizarre. I'm, I'm, I'm with Paul McCartney in a suite right now at the Ritz Carlton in Chicago. It was just completely unexpected. That's the way my day would go. Anyhow, she was a nice girl. Uh, she told me not, some nice, interesting stories. Paul came over and said, did my people take care of you? Did they give you, you know, some, some money? Did they, did they give you tickets to the concert tonight? And yes, I said, to everything. And I got out of there, and I called my wife. I said, I can't even tell you the day I had. I said, get a babysitter. Get on the train. Come to the city. We're going to a concert. I'll tell you when you get here. So it was just, uh, it was just crazy. And then that, that, that goofy story, Sean, traveled throughout our community like wildfire. So it was the biggest news story I ever was a part of. It absolutely had nothing to do with music. It was just you know, a freak occurrence, as best I could tell. And uh, and how they got my number, who knows? I, I can't even remember. It was an agent told another agent, told somebody from Live Nation. <clears throat> Here's the guy to call, and, and maybe he could help you out. But uh, <laughs> it was it was it was just very interesting, very different. You know, to, to be with uh, you know a Beatle. He was he's Paul McCartney. My goodness. Wow. Yeah, you can't write that stuff. You can't, you can't make no. it up. That's incredible. No. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing that. That's awesome. Now, you know what? The lesson, though, any strange numbers now, I'm going to definitely answer them on my cell phone. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I answer my cell phone all the time now, 14 years later. <laughs> yeah. So here's a question I usually wrap up uh, the interviews with for all the uh, guests. Do you listen to music for pleasure still? And if so, what type of music? Sure. I, I listen to music for pleasure whenever I get the opportunity. Usually it's either late at night, early in the morning, or when I'm driving. And I imagine that would be the case with many musicians. Uh, I wish I had more time to listen to music for enjoyment. I love listening to orchestral music. I love listening to music that I did not discover until I was older. Uh, you know, I, it wasn't until I was in college and beyond when I started discovering who Stravinsky was and, and the Brahms symphonies and uh, these beautiful works by Shostakovich and Charles Ives and all these greats, but I listen to a wide variety of things. I mean, I'm a jazz artist at heart. Uh, my background as a saxophonist took me through that road of knowing everything you could want to know about jazz and all the great players from John Coltrane and Charlie Parker to Coleman Hawkins and Lester Young to Duke Ellington and all those great artists. Where I still love listening to that music, and I love listening to pop music. We just did a show uh, three weeks ago with Bruce Springsteen here in Chicago where Bruce decided he wanted to add a large string section to his, his show that night in Chicago, and uh, 48 hours beforehand, they called us and asked us to get it together, including the charts, which we were happy to. And boy, it was it was wonderful. You know, like the show we worked together, you and I, with uh, Jerry Garcia's music, to with Warren Haynes. It was just great fun. So I love listening to a, a wide range of music, things that I may have years ago shut my ears to. You know, when you you come up in one genre or another, you you pretty much focus on that when you're young, and you kind of close the world off a little bit. I think it takes a certain level of maturity to realize that there's other great music out there to be. Uh, listen to, embrace, and to learn from. And in all honesty, if, uh, when I got first involved with the Jerry Garcia tour two years ago, 
I, if they put a gun to my head and asked me to name a Jerry Garcia song, I would be dead because I didn't know a single one. And then I discovered these beautiful orchestrations that they created for this Jerry Garcia symphonic celebration and, and this really wonderful singer-songwriter named Warren Haynes. And, you know, the rest has been nothing but great fun. Uh, I've gone out twice now on tour with them, and it's, it's been great. So I'll, I've learned to listen to all kinds of music, and anytime I get a chance to, to listen and enjoy, I, I, I go for it because there's nothing quite like it. That's wonderful. Um, I've also seen on uh, your orchestra's website and other things that you're involved with charitable organizations in Chicago. Uh, could you shed some light on those? Sure. Nice, nice of you to ask, too. Uh, the, the various organizations that I've been honored and privileged to help support uh, are a big part of my life on a daily basis, in all honesty. I, I've tried to teach my children that uh, giving is a moral imperative in our lives. You know, giving is really, in all honesty, it's an option. You don't have to give in life, but for my children, I've tried to teach them that it's a moral imperative. It's something we're called upon to do. It's something you're supposed to do. It's not a religious or a philosophical thing. It's a human thing. You know, it's that looking out for the guy next to you and taking whatever good things have happened in your life and paying them forward to the next person. So there's a number of organizations that uh, I've been able to embrace and be a part of, and, uh, you know, many of them deal with at-risk youth. Uh, some of them deal with immigration issues in our country. Uh, some of them deal with uh, 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 elder abuse. Some of them deal with, there's an organization called Harmony, Hope, and Healing, where they use music to heal and bring the, the healing power of music to homeless women and, and how they've been, and battered women, people, women who've been abused and had great challenges in their life. And music just takes them to a whole nother place in their life. They sing in these choirs they assemble, and you watch this come together, and you see the tears rolling down their eyes, and you see this level of emotional release they experience from the power and beauty of music. It's, it's, it's amazing. So there's a number of organizations, and I'm just like many other people who do what we can to help them thrive, help them do the good work they do in the community, and do it because it's something I feel that I'm called upon to do, and I feel that others are as well. And so you try your best to get others to help you to participate in these endeavors. And, boy, you, you, it's, it's funny. When you ask somebody to help, you, you're, you're, you're always shocked at how many people want to. They just didn't know how. They didn't know how to get involved with something. Or, you know, People are basically good at heart and want to participate and do good work in their communities. So it's a, it's a very joyful experience to be a part of any of the things that uh, – they revolve around those those level of giving and helping. That's great. Many of my guests that I've had on this show uh, reflect your sentiments exactly, and they give on the stage and off the stage. Uh, so that's really beautiful uh, when performers can do both. Right, right. I, I agree. And same thing, the people that outside of the community that we've worked with, and we see these large foundations, some very successful individuals set up that give to their communities and give internationally and nationally to uh you know to causes because of their celebrity and because of who they are and what they can do and they choose to do that it's, it's wonderful well rich it's been a pleasure uh talking to you i had a great time the last couple of years working with you here on the east coast with uh, Juan Haynes and the jerry garcia celebration and i hope to work with you and see you again soon sean it's been my pleasure it's it's, uh, it's been great working with you meeting you getting to know you now through this blog and through your generosity of spirit and, and uh, inviting me in I'm, I'm very grateful for that and I'll look forward to uh, another encounter with you, uh, if not on your blog, then in person when we work together the next time we're through the East Coast. And I hear there's already talk about some more East Coast dates with the Jerry Garcia show, so I hope that we can encounter each other at that time, too. That sounds great, Rich. Well, you have a great night, and uh, I'll talk to you later. Thanks so much. Okay, bye-bye. 
to find out more about Rich Daniels and the City Lights Orchestra and the many charitable organizations that Rich is involved with, please visit the links below this podcast. Thanks for listening.